The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 15, 1-15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among them, among the rebels in prison, who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again asked them, Then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. Uh, welcome to Sacred City Church. This is, if this is your first time, my name is Justin and I'm one of the pastors here and I do want to welcome you. I got a couple things I want to say really quick uh, before I jump into this. Uh, the first being, um, every year in the Christian community, some kind of, I, I hear these stirrings sometimes around Christmas and Easter or Resurrection Sunday time about Christmas being a pagan holiday and then we shouldn't celebrate it or Easter being a pagan holiday and we shouldn't celebrate it. And I just want to address that really quick in really minute way, okay? I'm not going to go into too much depth. First off, uh, there's a scene in the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul walks up this place called the Areopagus and it's where all the Stoic, all these philosophers would argue and he walks up and there's idols to all these gods, Okay. And idol, think about it, all these different gods they, they would worship and they would argue which god is the best. And they were, there was even this, uh, this uh, idol that said to an unknown god, all right? So just in case they didn't have any of them, they just said, this one is just, you know, I'm sure there's some gods out there that we haven't recognized, so this is the one to the unknown god, okay? So think about this. Men, women, worshiping an idol, okay, to an unknown god. That's pagan, right? That's pagan. Except what Paul does, when Paul comes to the top of Areopagus, what he does to argue his point is to, he says, hey, I see that you're very religious. I see that you want to worship God. And let me tell you who that unknown God is that you've got the idol to. That unknown God is actually Jesus Christ himself. So Paul takes this thing that was pagan, meant for pagan worship and he flips it and he uses it to point people back to the resurrected Jesus. Okay? So there are many people that, that don't understand this about Christianity. In, in the culture, in the world that we live in, there's basically three responses to the things that are made out there. We receive them. Some things are good, right? I really don't care if the man who makes my steak is pagan or not. If he cooks it medium rare, thank you, right? 
I'm gonna receive that gift with gladness if he knows how to cook a good steak, right? There's a lot of things in our culture. The culture makes, the culture creates, and we just receive them because they're, they're neutral, they're good. We just receive them with thanksgiving and gladness. But there are some things that are created out in the culture that we are meant to reject, okay? So first off, there's some things that we receive and there's some things that we just outright reject, right? Uh, we have morality uh, dictated to us through the scriptures. We have, there's a lot of things out there that we just outright reject, right? But there are many things that are maybe neither neat, good, or bad, or they could tend to go one way or the other. And what Christianity does since the very beginning, because this is what Jesus does, is he redeems them. Okay? And so there's some things that maybe were meant for bad and then Christianity hijacks those things, redeems it, and now uses it for good, right? Uh, there's a lot of things that can be done with that. So um, Christ, or for Christmas, you know, there's all kind of stuff in there that maybe there's some pieces of it that used to come from like some kind of pagan holiday and the, and the Christians hijacked that p pagan holiday and said, this is the day we're gonna celebrate Christ's birth and we're gonna worship Jesus uh, on this day and we're gonna celebrate his birth. So they kind of hijacked that. The same thing goes for Easter. Um, I mean, they do, we do believe that Jesus Christ was resurrected r right around this time of year. We know that through the Passover and some different ways we can work uh, the, the schedule. But there may be some things about Easter, if you trace, trace it all back, that we're pagan, but Christianity kind of took over it, right? Christianity kind of took over it, and now they hijack it, and we don't, you know, you could call it Easter, or you, we call it here Resurrection Sunday, right? But it's something that we should rejoice in, we should celebrate together, um, and, and, and God, no matter if there was, if there's some pagan stuff back in there, that Christianity has redeemed it, and we should celebrate it, because we celebrate as the birth, or as, as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I wanted just to mention that to you this morning. I wanted to throw it out there. I've, we can write some stuff up on the city, and there's a lot, we can go in a lot more detail, and just show you piece by piece. Um, you know, the funny thing is, I could talk about Valentine's Day, too. All the men said, I'm glad that's over, right? But, Valentine's Day, uh, it was originally a pagan holiday, all right? I'm gonna let you know this. It was a pagan holiday where people would, it was literally like, like an orgy, okay? And that's what it was. But St. Valentine redeemed this, or we don't really know which one. There was three actually St. Valentines if you look up in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the history of the church. We don't actually know which St. Valentine it was, but St. Valentine redeemed this day as a day of love, as a day where we celebrate the love of God and the love for each other. And so this pagan holiday got redeemed and now it's called Valentine's Day and it has really no uh, recollection to the pagan roots that it had, all right? So there's all, that's what Christianity does with any culture. We kind of take it and, and we redeem it and we keep the good pieces and we point them to Jesus and we let the, the bad stuff that we should reject, we let it fall away. So if you know of anyone who is, says things like that, um, you could fill them in. You can let them know how Christianity works within a culture, that there's some things we receive, there's some things we reject, and then there's some things that we redeem. And these holidays are one of the things that we redeem. So that was free this morning. Uh, it was on my mind. Uh, the second thing is that if you're joining us, we are uh, 15 months now into our study of the Gospel of Mark. At Sacred City, we believe the Bible uh, is the most important thing that we've been given uh, by God other than himself and his son and his Holy Spirit, but the scriptures are his revealed word to us. This is how we come to know him. We come to know God by reading his word, not by um, reading websites, not by you know, reading our Facebook feeds, not by reading the news, um, primarily you come to know God by reading his word and studying his word. So at Sacred City, <clears throat> we 
we focus on that by preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so we've been in this book of Mark for 15 months now. Um, We've entitled it King Jesus because the first verse um, says that Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, uh, that they called him Jesus the Christ. He's king of all kings. And so Jesus was a king. And then now today in our text, we're gonna see Pilate uh, ask him, so so you're, you're the king of the Jews? That's who you are? And we see this statement over and over. What do you want done with the king of the Jews? And the Gospel of Mark presents to us Jesus Christ as a king. And what I believe, and in our culture especially, we reject this idea of Jesus as a king. And what's interesting to me is we all kind of love kings in one sense. Like, my daughters love stories about kings and queens. They never once have told me, tell me that one about the democracy, dad. Never once. It's always king this or queen that or princess and princess. It's always that, right? We've got all these stories in our past, right? Every good story that we, that we have. Think about all the good stories you read as a kid. How many of them are, start with a democracy, right? Almost all of them start with kings and queens. But we have this, so we, we've got this kind of innate sense that we're meant to be ruled by a king. We're meant to be governed by a king. And yet something in us has went wrong. And so there's this sense in us that, uh, well, I've heard it said like this, that, that democracy is medicine. Democracy is medicine because we're all sinful people and therefore any, any king that we lift up and we put on top of us and we say, tell us how to live, tell us what to do, uh, make our world better. Any king that we put up, because they're fallen, because they're sinful, uh, they go bad. And if you look in the Old Testament, that's exactly what happened. The people wanted kings, God gave them judges, but they didn't want that, they wanted kings. And so every king that they exalted up, that king went did good, 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 and then like a piece of fruit on the counter, he went ripe and went real bad real fast. Every single king, Saul, David, Solomon, they all, good, 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 they go bad. And so as a medicine, now you can't just be healthy living off of medicine. You weren't meant to eat medicine, but medicine is for what ails us. And because of this sinfulness in humanity that God kind of gave us democracy, and he kind of spread it out, and he, and, he, uh, and, and he kind of took some powers away from kings. But inside of us all, there's this desire to be led and ruled by a king, that our life would be better if we had a king who could just make perfect decisions for us and rule perfectly and ju- you know, perfectly just and perfectly righteous and, and be perfectly good all the time, our life would be better if that could actually happen. But because of sin, we don't have that king. And because of sin in our own hearts and the fallenness of our own self, there's something about kings that we despise as well. There's something about kings that we push away from and we don't want to be ruled by. And what we're going to see today in our text is really we're going to see four different responses to King Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, um, I don't know if it's just because I've been really fired up because I was in Africa for, for two weeks. The last two weeks, man, I was ready to preach. The sermons just flowed uh, it, and it was rocking and rolling. This week, I told the guys backstage that this sermon drew blood on me this week. This, this week, the sermon came out painful. There was like six sermons in this text, I felt, and I couldn't figure out which one that the, that the Lord wanted me to preach this morning. And so it was a brutal, it was a kind of a brutal week for me as your pastor, preparing, thinking through, meditating on, because this, 
passage, number one, I've never preached on it. I don't know if I've ever heard it preached. I've heard it mentioned. Uh, but there's so much good stuff down deep in this context that we're going to study and we're going to reveal it this morning. So, uh, so let's jump into our text. We're at chapter 15. We've worked all the way up through the first 14 chapters. Now we're at chapter 15, verse 1. Um, and today we find ourselves beginning our study on the last day of Jesus' life. Two weeks ago, we saw Jesus arrested under the cover of darkness while praying with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was arrested and taken to this upper room at the chief priest's house and interrogated there by the Jewish leaders. Uh, they accused him of many things, if you remember. But nothing was going to stick until Jesus himself said outright that he was the Messiah and that he was the Son of God. This caused the Jewish leaders to actually blow a gasket. They ripped their shirt open. They freaked out. Uh, this was blasphemy, and it deserved the death penalty. But there were some problems. One, this was an Ill illegal religious trial. It was being held at night. Um, it, it didn't follow the proper procedures when it came to witness testimony. We had witnesses contradicting each other. It should have been thrown out, but it wasn't. And third, the Jewish people were still under the jurisdiction and rule of Rome, and therefore they could not execute anyone. Rome let them handle most of their religious things, uh, their minor disputes, but if somebody was wor of worthy or they were seeking the capital punishment for this person, then, then Rome had to actually try the case. And so we see right away here in verse one, as soon as it was morning, <clears throat> the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So we see right away in verse one, all of the religious establishments bind Jesus and take him to the Roman governor, Pilate. Now, let's just pause and ask ourselves this question and ask our text this question. Why did the Jewish religious leaders want Jesus dead? Well, we don't have to search very far for our answer if we go right back to our text. Verse 10 tells us very clearly it was out of envy that the chief priests delivered him up. It was out of envy. Now, what is envy? Envy is a grief or anger caused by another person's success. Envy is a grief or anger caused by another person's success. Now, I want you to let that sink in a little bit this morning. Because I think if we're gonna really understand the difference between um, true Christians and people who are just religious, we need to understand this contrast. See, the most religious people of Jesus' day, the ones who worked for the temple and dedicated themselves to the reading of the scriptures and the study of the scriptures, they were the chief mediators between people and God, these people Mark tells us this morning, they were secretly led by an inward sense of envy. They saw Jesus, who was the Son of God. They saw kind of the duality of his nature. I mean, I don't want to say Jesus is completely one, 
But when you look at Jesus, he's so unique. He is at once super confident and yet incredibly humble. And those two things don't go together very often. We see Jesus sometimes preach just in a fiery way, a commanding way. He has this presence about him that speaks truth very sharp and very pointed and can convict people to the heart and can shut people up. The smartest people of their society, he could shut up in a moment. And yet we also see Jesus almost in the same breath respond so gently to women and children and people who are bruised and people who are cast out of society. They witnessed him heal the sick, give sight to the blind, raise the dead. And yet, now think about this. To witness a man doing all these things and yet instead of falling at his feet in worship and sit like a king and saying, Jesus, you are the king of the universe. Let us worship you. No one else can do these things. Instead of saying that, what do they say? They say, who does this guy think he is? What gives you the right to do that. See, and what envy does is it looks at the success of another person and it says, that should have been me. I deserve that. Now, what's interesting, 2,000 years later, is this is still alive in the, and well in the hearts of people today. And I'll tell you, it's it shows us the great difference between the gospel of Christian and Christianity and religion. And this is one of the great joy killers of religion. Religious people don't rejoice when other people rejoice. No, they frown. And so that makes them very sad people because when people around them are experiencing good things in life, they don't rejoice with people who rejoice. They look and go, oh, they don't deserve that. That should have been me. When a religious person sees someone get promoted at work or someone fall in love or someone get pregnant or someone have great blessings come their way, they can't rejoice with them. They envy. They say, it should have been me. Now, why is that the case? Because religious people think that God works with a ledger in his hand. Religious people and it's so funny because I meet so many people who don't think they're religious. And so don't let that label religious throw you off because I think many of us are religious without thinking about it. And, and listen to this explanation here and see if that's the case for you. Religious people think that God works with a ledger in his hand. Every time they do something good, God writes it down and that good mark now ensures them that something good is on its way. So if you give a big check in the offering, you know God wrote it down in his book and he's looking it over and he's really pleased with you and pretty soon you are gonna be receiving some good news. And so if people, they, they live their life trying to do one little good thing or one little good thing and they think God's writing it down and then anytime something bad happens in their life, it kind of blows their mind. What's going on? Aren't you looking in your book? Didn't you see how I did this and this and this this week? Right. Didn't you see this, God? Like, I, wa I, I watched all four kids yesterday while my wife was gone. All four kids for a day. Come on. <laughs> right? 
Now I expect some return on that investment, Lord, right? That's how religious people work, right? That's how religious people work. Now, we, we think of that in the positive. We don't really want God to be right with the ledger with the bad things we do or the lies that we tell or the deceitful things that we do. We don't want him that, but we want the ledger on the good side. And so what happens is religious people who think of God like that and they think of themselves in this way, they're rarely happy because it's hard to be happy when you're always checking the books. They're always trying to stay aware of everyone else, everyone else's business that's going on around them because they've got to balance the books. And if that person's doing well, well, then I need to do a little bit better. Is that what's going on in that person's life? They always want to be measuring everyone else around them. And so they're very rarely happy. They get envious of other people's success. And then here's what's, if we search our own heart, that's even more dark is they secretly rejoice when other people fail. They secretly rejoice when that person that we're in, we feel like we're in competition with, when they finally get theirs. When their marriage kind of hits the rocks and hits a dark place, or when their kid rebels and runs away from Jesus for a little while, or they get sick. We find, finally, they're getting theirs. I knew it was coming. We kind of feel this inward sense of joy at another person's failures. Now, this should shock us, I think. These men here in our text were so religious. They were so religious, they were so busy looking at their ledger and concerned with their self, their status, their behavior, their standing in the eyes of other people, that when the Son of God, think about this, when God sent his son to be born of a virgin and live and walk among them, performing all these miracles, who came to live a perfect life and die a substitutionary death for them, when he's walking in front of them, they're so focused on themselves. They're so narcissistic. That's what religion does. It makes you more and more and more narcissistic, focused on your behavior and how well you're performing compared to everybody else. They're so focused on themselves that they actually miss the Son of God. When the Son of God comes into their life, they don't see him as a savior meant to save. They see him as competition. And the same is true today. Now, there are many people, and, and, and one of my jobs as a pastor is to remind everyone that's coming to the church, um, just because you come to the church does not mean you're a Christian. And there's many people today, especially out on the campaign trail, that claim to be Christians, that say they're Christians. Anybody can say they're Christians. Anybody can believe in God. The scripture tells us the devil and the demons believe in God and shudder. But they don't worship him as king. They don't serve him as king. And there are many people maybe here today, I'm definitely in our city, who call themselves Christians, maybe think that they are Christians, but they're not, they're just religious. They come to Jesus, and they wanna have a relationship with Jesus for the main purpose to make themselves feel better, and specifically feel better than other groups of people. We're not like them, I'm a Christian. 
I'm a good person. I'm moral. I'm not like that group of people. They come to Jesus to get a self-esteem boost or to get a leg up on the competition at work that somehow getting Jesus on my side is gonna make me more prosperous at work. I'm gonna be a better salesman or I'm gonna be a better CEO or I'm gonna be a a better whatever it is and I'm gonna kinda use Jesus to get a leg up on the competition at work and hopefully he's writing it down in my ledger and every good thing I do at work, he's gonna help me be successful. Some of us just come to Jesus. Many people I meet in, in, in this world, in this in our day and age today, that come to Jesus and really all they want is Jesus to stamp the life that they want for themselves. Here's what I want for my life, God. Whatever it is, you could write it out. Perfect education or perfect family or perfect spouse or upper middle class or this neighborhood, this amount of success, this amount of prestige, and then you bring it to Jesus and you want Jesus to stamp it for you and say, yes, there you go. I'll give you everything you want. And we cherry pick Bible verses out of the scripture to to create this Jesus who basically is a genie in a bottle who gives us what we want, the American dream. But that is not reality. That's not the real Jesus. Those people who think they're worshiping Jesus and they're deep down, they're just religious. They're not deeply happy. They're not deeply, they're not solid people. They're very wishy-washy and the circumstances of their life blow them one way or blow them the other way. They're, they're very up and down. Why? Because religion at its base, at its core, is fueled by envy. It's not fueled by love. Religion is fueled by envy, just like the the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Now, so I'm gonna just say, there's kind of the first way you can deal with King Jesus is is you can compete with him. You, You can try to please him in a religious sense. You can try to deal with him through religion. Okay, and I'm gonna let you know that doesn't go well these religious leaders end up handing Jesus over to be crucified and they crucify him and they'll stand before the throne of God one day as literally having handed Jesus over to be crucified. That religion can't deal with the king and religion can't deal with the sins that we've done against the king. Now look at the second way, verse two. And Pilate asked him, that's Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, "Uh, you have said so. And the chief priest then accused him of many things and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was was amazed. Now, Pilate, who is the Roman governor, he questions Jesus himself. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Now, this is interesting because the religious leaders don't tell Pilate that their real issue is they want Jesus dead because of blasphemy. What is that? That's a theological issue, right? They have a theological issue with Jesus, but they know Pilate could care less about their religion. Pilate's, Pilate could care less about their theology, this you know, problem of blasphemy. So what do they do? They say, Pilate, this guy says he's a king. Now, that is treason, See, Pilate's job was to keep the peace and destroy any insurrections and political threats that might come against Rome. Pilate had no problem. 
He wasn't this great man of conscience, right? He had no problem killing people to keep the peace and to keep his job. He had no problem doing that. He'd done it several times before. So the chief priests try to play this political angle now. And they, get, they try to get Jesus killed for claiming to be the true king of the Jews over and against Caesar. And it's interesting, I find it interesting, that Jesus doesn't just say, no, I'm not. Nor does he say, yes, I am. Because if he said, yes, I am, then he would be immediately killed as an insurrectionist. Right? He doesn't say, I'm the true king. And I'm here to overthrow Rome politically and that's why I'm here to give you political freedom to set my people free in a political sense. He he doesn't say it. But instead, Jesus gives this rather ambiguous answer and he says, you have said so. And if you read it in the Greek, he really emphasizes you. He says, you have said so. And the commentators say that this is as if Jesus is saying, you should think about the question a little more. Because actually the question wasn't, Pilate doesn't say, are you the king of the Jews? I know this is kind of how it reads because it makes better sense. But he says, you are the king of the Jews? Question mark. And he says, you have said so. You should think about that question. What if I am? What type of king am I? What evidence do you have against me? Do you know what type of man I am? Do you know what kind of life I've lived? Do you know what I've done up until this moment in this life? Do you know why I'm standing before you? Do you know what I'm about to do? What kind of king do you think I am? Am I a king? You should think about it. And that's what I want us to do this morning. If Jesus really is a king, what does that mean for us? You know, the thing about kings, the frustrating thing about kings, this is, like I said earlier, one of the reasons we push against kings a little bit. The frustrating thing about kings is that there's only two ways to live with them. You either submit to them, honor them, obey them, you do what they say, or you rebel from them. That's it. We don't know that. We've never lived under a king But that's how you deal with kings. That's the only way to live under a king. You either do what they say or you rebel from them. And if you rebel from them, (laughs) judgment's coming, right? Punishment is on its way. It's like the IRS. Either you pay the taxes or you are a criminal. You can disagree with them. You can think they're corrupt. You can think that they're, they're thieves. You can disagree all you want. But in reality, you want to live in our country, you either pay your taxes or they're coming looking for you, right? You try to go off the grid, they're going to come and they're going to find you and you're going to be liable for, for prosecution. Now, it, this is interesting to me. That's the way it is with kings. It's their way or judgment, I've noticed that most of the people that I meet in our city, people that are far from God, when I talk to them about God, most of them don't have any problem whatsoever with God. I don't meet too many angry atheists. Now, I have a few friends that are, but I don't meet too many in our city that angry atheists. Most of the people that I meet in our city don't have any problem with God, don't have any problem or very little problem with religion. What they do have a problem with is Jesus is king. They have a problem with this idea that Jesus can tell people how to live. That Jesus can write the rules of life. 
That Jesus can quote unquote tell us who we can and who we can't love. That Jesus can tell us how to handle our money. Who, what? See, that's the Jesus that most of my friends that don't know Christ push away from. King Jesus. They don't want that type of relation. They don't want a king. They want maybe an advisor or a self-help guru. They want a little Oprah-fied Jesus to come along and help them get what they really want in life. They don't want to deal with a, a king. Now, I think this is a big problem for all of us because I think many of us, we don't want to submit to anyone. Because if Jesus, think about this, if Jesus really is the king, and not just the king of the Jews. See, I think that's why Jesus, one of the reasons he doesn't just say, I'm king of the Jews, because he's more than king of the Jews. The scripture calls him king of all kings, lord of all lords, king of all kings. The king of all kings, at whose feet Every, think about this. What if Jesus really is the king who every single person who's ever walked the face of the earth will stand before his throne one day in judgment? What if that's true? Now, we don't like to talk about it today. We think it's a, an issue, you know, we think it's some kind of puritanical issue from way back way when we don't want to think about it. But what if it's true? What if Jesus really is who he says he is and he really is the king of all kings which every human being's knee will eventually bow? What that means, listen, this, what that means is any disobedience of him would be a crime. Now listen, not just like, oops, sorry, a crime. If you disobey the king, that's a criminal action, right? It's literally, any disobedience to the king is literally a criminal activity against King Jesus. Now listen, that is how the Bible describes sin. Not as an oops, not as the fun stuff that all the teenagers think that their parents are just trying, oh, you're just holding back on me. You're holding back all the fun stuff that I get to do. Sin is all the fun stuff that the Bible says no. No, that's absolutely ridiculous. That's foolish. Sin is the exact opposite direction of happiness. Anytime we involve, sin is the, that criminal activity that, that, that defeats our own happiness, that works against our own happiness, that God wants the best for us, but it comes in being obedient to the king. Crime is a, or sin is a crime against King Jesus and his kingdom and now listen, here it is. Just theoretically, let's just say this. If Jesus really is a king and disobedience to him really is a crime, that means any disobedience is a criminal activity that deserves to be punished as high treason. Right? And this is my observation this morning. In our text, we see four responses to this reality we see four responses to King Jesus. One is the religious way. We've already seen it. That's to say this. You have a crime against the king? Here's the answer. Do better. Try harder. Envy those who are better than you and crucify anyone who gets in your way. Anyone who gets between you and your goal, you and your better self, run them over. This is an attempt, ultimately, to save yourself and to be your own king. 
And the second way we see from Pilate, and it's the political response. Stay neutral to Jesus personally. Don't get all that involved in Christianity or in Jesus or in religion. Keep your life free from too many commitments and just give the people and give yourself what you want. See, and what's interesting to me, Pilate looks at Jesus here and he sees Jesus standing firm under opposition and people are throwing things at him. They're blaming him. They're claiming he did this and claiming he did that. They're trying to, and Jesus stands firm and it says Pilate is amazed. Think about this. This is, this is how, this is the political response to Jesus. To look at him, wow, how does he do that? Now most of us, we're just not intellectually honest about Jesus. I'm gonna be honest, I'm just gonna say that. We don't even look at like historically that this was a no this was a no-named person, I'm just gonna use this, from Mount Joy, okay? From Mount Joy, he grew up in the, in the middle of nowhere, right? He had no college education. He had no famous relatives. He never wrote a book. He never appeared on CNN. He didn't have anything going for him. And yet, 2,000 years later, millions, maybe billions of people worship him as God, that should blow our mind, right? That should blow our mind that this no-name person from 2,000 years ago, from halfway across the world, is worshiped as God today by a billion people. See, we're not intellectually honest. We look at Jesus like, yeah, he, he's pretty fascinating. See, that's how Pilate looked at him. Oh, that, that's amazing. That's fascinating. Wow, he's an interesting person. Interesting people aren't worshiped as God for 2,000 years, right, right? It, let's be consistent, let's use our brain, like, as I tell my son all the time, use your head for more than a hat rack, right? Think about it. There's something unique about him. There's something true about him, and don't you dare try to treat him in a religious way and just do better and try harder to please him, and don't you dare try to treat him as a politician would and just maybe, you know, that's fascinating. I'm gonna keep my distance. I'm not gonna be too involved. Listen, here's one of my, let me just say this out there. If you have any p person, if you're, if you're voting, if your Christianity and your, your, your commitment to the gospel of Christ informs the way that you vote as it should inform everything you do in life, if you're voting a person because they're a Christian, just do a few things. Just find out, what, what's, what home church do they go to? Who's their pastor? Here's one thing you can do. Well, you should be able to do, hopefully in a few days you will be able to do, look up their giving record. How much, they're making millions of dollars, how much are they, giving, are they giving to their local church? Don't say, my candidate is a Christian, my candidate is a follower of Christ, if you haven't checked up on that stuff. Because anybody can, anybody can say evangelical, why? I want the vote. But are they, like Pilate, are they keeping a, a real, you know, a distance from him? They're keeping a distance. I don't want to be influenced by the way of Jesus too much, but I want to be this political Christian. Is that how they are? That's what Pilate's doing. <clears throat> now, there's another response to King Jesus. There's two more in here. And I think, first off, we're going to see one way that can destroy the root of envy in your heart. 
And there's many of us that we know we're envious and we know we, we see somebody succeed and that something tightens in us and we get little, and, but we don't know how to kill it. And there's, a, there's one response or there's one thing that's gonna happen in this text that if, if we make it as our own, if we accept it and believe it as our own, it can actually cut off the root of envy in our heart. It, it can change our life. It can fill you with such a sense, like a visceral awareness of the love of God that I'm accepted by God in Christ. And you can fill you with such a sense of the love of God that no matter what comes in your life, no matter how difficult the circumstances, no matter how dark at times, you, you're like a beach ball, right? Have you ever tried to keep a beach ball underwater? Right? It just, you force it under and it pops up. That's what happens in your heart if, if, you, if you experience the change that we're gonna see in here or one of the responses that we're gonna see in here. And it can fill you with this incredible power that literally changes your life in such a way that it sends you out into the world and now, yeah, you're a missionary and, you, and you're on mission to other people and you're willing to suffer and you're willing to sacrifice and you're willing to lay down you know, your comforts in life to see other people know this love and this acceptance and this peace and this love and this joy and this power. And we're going to see this kind of. It's different. It's, we're going to see this through this man named Barabbas. And that's where we're going. Uh, let, let's look at verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. So Pilate, just like any president, uh, they have the ability to uh, pardon anyone that they want. They have the ability to pardon anyone that they want. And on this day, uh, the, 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 they're celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover was the night before, and it was this tradition that they had started. We don't really know when this tradition was started, but it was this tradition that on this day, I'm gonna release for you anybody that you want, any criminal that you want. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas, okay. So Jesus, interestingly enough, is accused of being an insurrectionist, though he's not. He's accused of starting an insurrection, claiming he's a king, he's gonna overthrow Caesar, but he's not. But in the prison right now, the Roman government had squashed an insurrection. And one of those men leading the insurrection is this na- man named Barabbas, who in this insurrection, trying to free, uh, free Jew, free the Israelites from Roman rule, he committed murder, right? And there's many rebels in the prison, and this one guy was a murderer, and his name is Barabbas. And interestingly, Barabbas, that name literally means Bar is son, and Abbas, Abba, father. So Barabbas' name literally means son of the father, okay? This man named son of the father, this man named Barabbas, is sitting in his cell, waiting to be executed. Now, now I want you to think about that for a second. Here we have a man convicted of insurrection and murder awaiting his execution. Barabbas was a guilty criminal, 
right? A guilty criminal who had earned the just punishment of crucifixion. The Romans perfected this thing called crucifixion. Have you ever heard the word excruciating? The word excruciating literally means from the cross. They had to invent a new word to describe the pain that was inflicted, the punishment that was inflicted from the cross. And the Romans reserved crucifixion for the worst of the worst, for those insurrectionists and those murderers. And so, Barabbas is sitting in a, Roman, or in a Roman cell, guilty. He knows he's guilty. He's caught red-handed. And he hears them outside his window preparing the whipping block for him, preparing the chains for him, preparing a cross for him. The wooden cross on Golgotha that Jesus will eventually hang on, that wooden cross was Barabbas' cross. But for some reason, Barabbas gets to go free. Now, I'm going to come back to that, and before I do, I want to look at this last response. Verse 8, and the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. So give us, let us have a criminal. And he answered them saying, now hold on, who is this? This is the crowd. This is because some of us, I said democracy is medicine, right? Democracy is medicine. But democracy doesn't always get it right either, guys. The crowd doesn't always get it right. And many times in the book of Mark, the crowd has always been kind of antagonistic to Jesus. And what we see here, let's keep reading. The crowd said, do what you usually do for us. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? So it's interesting that Pilate doesn't say like this guy might be. He just says he is. Do you want to, me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests, see, we got lobbyists out there. We got lobbyists out there in the crowd. Chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. Now this moment, we see the fourth way to kind of respond to Jesus and it's the way of the crowd. So we had the religious response, we had the political response, we've got this, something's going on, gonna go happen with Barabbas, but then we've got this fourth response that's just go with the flow, go with the crowd. Who do people say that Jesus, that Jesus is? Just kind of, what's, what's everybody else doing around me? And this is, this, this is called mob mentality, this is called group think. If you find yourself you know, wandering onto the street during some kind of protest, there's something innate in a human being that kind of gets you caught up in the, craziness of the situation. And so we see these people that more likely are there wanting one of their insurrectionists out. They, they want Barabbas out. You know, they've created this little thing that's going to get out there and they're going to try to get their guy out, the guy that's been trying to free them from Roman oppression, the guy who's willing to murder for them, the guy who's willing to fight for them. We want to get this guy out. And this is scary. See, they don't care about the truth they don't care about goodness. They don't care about morality. They don't care about what's right. Pilate says, what evil has this guy done? They don't answer. 
Crucify him, crucify him. We want what we want. We want a guy who will lead us the way we want to be led. We want a guy who will fight and kick and scream and murder for us. That's what we want. Now, I want you to hear this. That's scary to me. See, I think we want a king. I think everyone wants to be led. But because we're fallen, because we're sinful, we want, ele- we want to elect. We want to put somebody ahead of us to lead us who will do things our way. And what, what does Pilate do? Pilate, his political response, okay, that's what you want, that's what you get. Is that the polls say? That's who you want, that's who people voted for, there it is. This is where democracy goes bad. I'm gonna say this, in, in our society, democracy, yeah, it's great. What if the people are wicked? What if they are criminals too? What if they care more about what they want in the moment than truth and goodness and love? What what if? What if what they want is bad and evil? See, these people don't care that Barabbas is a convicted murderer. They are so fed up with the way things are that they choose a criminal over the righteous and holy king. Now, as I break this down, as I close, I want you to see what's going on here. We see four responses to King Jesus. One is envy, right? It's the religious response. They don't want Jesus to be their king. They they just want what Jesus had. They wanted to be their own king, right? And we see two, Pilate, he's got this fascination with Jesus. But he's still neutral enough to order an innocent man to be put to death and go to sleep, right? Go home, go to sleep. Go on with his life. This was the political response. Keep your distance so you can keep your power and your prestige and your position that you've earned. Keep a distance from Jesus. Then we see this last response, the crowd's response. They would rather have a violent insurrectionist set free than Jesus. No doubt, they would rather have someone who is willing to fight and kill for them than a king who is willing to die for them. But then we have Barabbas. And interesting enough, I'm talking about the response, and 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 I've been wrestling with this all night and all week. There's something special that's happening here, though we actually don't have any response from Barabbas. And I pray that that's not your response this morning. I actually want to do something unique, and I want us to kind of think of ourselves and put ourselves in the place of Barabbas. Barabbas, we don't have any response. We don't even know what happened to him. This is, this is something that kind of blows my mind. There's no record of him in scripture. There's no record of him in church history. We have no idea how Barabbas responds to this moment. 
but instead of really focusing on that, I want, to put, I want us to put ourselves in the place of Barabbas and then ask ourselves, how should we respond? Barabbas is guilty. He's a criminal. And he's done absolutely nothing to deserve release. Right? He isn't. We don't have anything from him. We don't have him begging for it. We don't have him writing the governor. We don't have him repenting, confessing his sins. We don't have him doing anything. He's sitting in his jail cell. He's looking at a cross being built for him. And then all of a sudden, in one moment, we hear them, bring out Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. In one moment, there's this divine exchange where this guilty criminal gets set free and walks out. This is all grace. Now, how would we respond? I want you to think about it. What if we are all criminals convicted of high treason against King Jesus and we're all awaiting our death? We're all awaiting our death sentence. What if we had put ourselves in Barabbas' place here? What if we had already heard the verdict ring out guilty and we already heard the consequences come out. That says, condemnation of death, you will be crucified for your crimes against the king. What if we had already heard that and now we're sitting in a cell and we're mulling it over and we're watching the cross being built and we're hearing the Romans sharpening they're instruments of death and they can't wait to get their hands on us and they're walking by and they're spitting on us and they're walking by and say, you're mine tomorrow morning. You're mine in three hours. I can't wait to tear into you. And we're sitting there and it, just the weight of what we've done is coming upon us. The weight of what's going to happen to us is coming upon us and then suddenly on the day of our execution, moments before our execution, we're set free. And it's not just we're set free. This isn't like a reversal in judgment. New evidence hasn't come, up, come to light. This isn't a reversal in judgment. There has been no new evidence found. This is a substitution. Another man has taken our place. So as they bring Barabbas out, they bring Jesus in. And it says that Pilate had him scourged. Now, scourging, if you've ever seen the Passion of the Christ, that's the most realistic depiction of it that I've ever seen. There's a, there's a, a stump, a post, and the person is chained to it, uh, naked or just, in their, or just in a cloth, usually naked, and they're chained to it, around it, and there's um, uh, a, a whip with nine tails on it, and the tails, are it's all made of leather, and they tie bits of glass to it, they tie bits of, of metal to it, bits of bone to it, dip the ends in lead, and they would beat the person, not just 39 times, that's what happened to Paul. Many people think Jesus had 39. No, they would beat them until they were close to death, okay? Many people, after receiving the roaming scourging, would die on the way to the cross, because it was meant to pull the skin away from the body, reveal the bones, reveal the entrails. It was meant to completely make, I mean, bring them to the point of death so they would die really fast on the cross. And Barabbas knows this is coming and he gets let out and he gets exchanged and now, now what is he? Now he's a member of the crowd. 
He's been set free, but he's watching what should have happened to him. It's, it's playing before his very eyes. And the post that was reserved for him and the chain that was reserved for him and the whip that was reserved for him and the violence that was reserved for him is now being unleashed on Jesus Christ. The guilty is went free and the innocent is taking the pain. See, this is what the Bible calls the gospel. It's not religion. And I'm gonna tell you, I think all of us, we've probably been every person in this story other than Jesus. We've been the religious person, we've been the political person, likes to keep a distance, right? We've been in a part of the crowd, just go with the flow. But you're not a Christian until you say, I am Barabbas. Until you see yourself as guilty, condemned, deserving of death, hell, and the judgment for your crimes against God, any sin, your crimes against Jesus, the king of the universe, until you see yourself as Barabbas and that you're not just gonna go and die and pay your penance. No, Jesus has went in for you. Jesus has traded places for you and the punishment that your sins deserve. Now I know in our society, we don't think we deserve punishment. It's a curse of our culture. When I was in Kenya, everyone in Ken Kenya knew they deserved wrath. They knew they deserved punishment. They have a different culture than we do. I didn't have to convince them of that. I had to convince them that God is good and God is gracious and God is loving. In America, I have to convince people that Jesus is king and he deserves our allegiance. He deserves our love and our obedience. And that if we don't, we deserve wrath. We are born into sin. It's a curse. Scripture calls us this. Now, we parents, you need to tell your kids this, okay? We're born into sin. We're called enemies of God. We're called children of wrath. We're guilty of disobeying King Jesus in a million ways and the just punishment for us if we stay there. If we don't experience a change, the just punishment for us is death and hell and eternal separation from God. But we tell our kids this too and I tell you this too. Jesus traded places with Barabbas. Jesus traded places with you if you will admit you're Barabbas. If you'll accept it. This is what 1 Peter 3.18 says. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. That Jesus Christ the righteous took the place of the unrighteous. And here in this story, it's a real life event. You know, Pilate tried to stay neutral, but when we, confess, when we read our profession of faith from the Apostles' Creed 2,000 years later, we say what? Crucified under Pontius Pilate. Right? It's a historical event. It happened in real time. Jesus Christ, and this is, as we look at our text today, it happened in real life, but it's also a parable of the gospel. 
how can you be made right with God? See your sins placed on Jesus. See yourself as Barabbas and Christ take your place. And when you do that, when you have the freedom of spirit to say, I'm a criminal. I'm a criminal deserving of the wrath of God and yet Jesus Christ took my place. It does something inside of you. It explodes joy in your heart. It gives you this unsinkable power in your life. It moves you out on mission because now everything is a response to what Jesus has already done for you. Everything is out of gratitude and love and, and the acceptance that you already have in Christ that this is a historical fact. Jesus died for us. And when we get that, you'll never say, well, I know God will love me. I know God loves me if he does this. I know God loves me if he gives me the promotion, or I know God loves me if he gives me the girl or the guy or or keeps my kids healthy. I know God loves me. No, no, no. You know God loves you because you were Barabbas. You were waiting your execution and you watched him take the hill for you. This thought blows my mind. And honestly, I kind of want to just end right there this morning. Father, We see many different responses to your kingship in this text this morning. We want to deny that you're really a king and just try to placate you through our good works, keep you off our back by doing good in the religious response, or we just want to stay political and just keep you at a distance. Don't really want to get too involved in anything like Pilate. Or maybe we're like the crowd. We just, when we're, in, when we're at church, we feel like worshiping, we feel like being a Christian, but then when we're out in the world, at work, or in our, in our neighborhood, or at the gym, we just go with the crowd. And maybe we, we're like the crowd. We don't, we don't want somebody to die for us. We want somebody to fight for us. We want a belligerent murderer to be set free instead of the king. But Father, there's a way out of all those responses and it's through seeing us, through seeing ourselves through the eyes of Barabbas that you, the sinless one, set us free from our prison through your own pain through your own sacrifice. Let us think about that scourging where your flesh was ripped from your body and your bones were exposed. Where you, Isaiah tells us, you were beat so bloody and so mercilessly that men turned their face from you. They couldn't handle the goriness And we want to keep our religion nice and neat and clean. And you're chained to a bloody stump, being beat to an inch of your life because you love us, because we are guilty, because we have committed high treason against the king and only the king's son could rescue us. Jesus, I thank you. I pray that this would produce worship in our heart, 
I don't know what happened to Barabbas, but I know what's happened to me. I know how it makes me feel when I think of my Savior, when I think of my sinful responses so often. But when I see myself, I look through the prison bars and see Jesus taking my place. I don't know if Barabbas followed him from this whipping block to the cross. I can't imagine looking on that and not being moved. We thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us, and then three days later, rising to new life, defeating death, defeating sin, giving us a new hope, giving us a new future, giving us a new end. We thank you for all that you've done. I pray that as we come this morning, we take the body, we would have that mental picture in our head that this body was ripped apart, that you could literally walk up to that whipping block and see flesh laying on the ground. And the last supper, when you broke that body and you said, this is my body broken for you, we see that today begin to happen in our text. Your body was broken. Flesh was ripped from your body. And you give it to us. You were broken so that we could be made whole, that your blood was shed so that our sins could be covered once and for all, and we can now be in Christ receive all the blessings. You brought us to God. We can receive all the blessings that come with that. Father, I pray that you take this deep down into our heart and you would change us from the inside out and we would live for your glory alone in our city as people who have a story like Barabbas. We were bound, but we were set free. We were condemned to die, but now we live because Jesus Christ took our place. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.